right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. This is actually episode 17, which uh, makes me think of my favorite song from Winger. You know that one, Jeff? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yep. She's only Winger. 17. <laughs> All right. Anyway, now that I probably just, uh, everybody just got off of here. Anyway, I'm here with uh, Jeff Orange today. Two R's. Um, he's been a firefighter for uh, 22 years. 15 of which have been served with the Orlando Fire Department. Uh, it's probably not snowing there, I imagine, so I'm jealous. Uh, <laughs> he's uh, currently a lieutenant paramedic on an engine company and uh, previously served two and a half years as a lieutenant in a training division. Uh, he's a husband, father, and a friend. Uh, he's armed with passion, empathy, a great support system, and willingness to help those who means the most to him. Uh, just been a co-founder of the Orlando Firefighter Peer Support Team. Uh, he's also a founding member of the Orlando Firefighters Pierce, um, excuse me. Uh, his team uh, was also deployed during the Pulse tragedy, the Las Vegas shooting, and the Parkland shooting. Uh, he's been promoting mental wellness through grassroots efforts for many years. He believes that making it through the career mentally as well as physically is paramount. Uh, he's also has the honor of serving with the statewide peer coordinator for the Florida Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative. Uh, he, as a peer coordinator there, he's responsible for coordinating with industry leaders and related agencies to fa- facilitate professional standards, diversified training opportunities, deployments, and other related activities. So that being said, and I know I messed it up a few times, but yeah, it's typical for me. Uh, Thanks for coming on here. I know you're just getting off this morning, so um, it sounds like it was a lo- at least rough to last uh, last hour or so, taking calls by calls by calls. And I told you earlier, I said the citizens should, you know, be a little bit more courteous and know that you're going to be talking to me. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, sometimes sometimes they can only see their little bubble, and you know, we just got to <laughs> deal with it sometimes. Oh, it's yeah. 5.30. They're probably eating. I'm going to call now. <laughs> All right, right. Yeah. yeah. All right, so let me ask you this. Let's dive right in. How did you get involved with peer support to begin with? Uh, strictly by accident. So, first of all, thank you for having me on. I, I, I appreciate what you're doing and, and giving people a voice to, to share their stories. Um, I got involved in peer support strictly by accident. I had broken my leg skateboarding, uh, even though I was probably too old, had reached my shelf life on skateboarding because I was never very good. And I was serving uh, on a light duty position while I was uh, recovering from the leg injury. And I had to deliver a customer service class to all of our members. Um, It's a terrifying thing to tell people, probably the most terrified that I've ever been in the fire service to tell people they have to come off the line, go out of service, and sit through a class on how to treat people better. And uh, the people who developed the class, a mentor of mine, a a guy named Jill McLuhan, he's one of our district chiefs, was very, very smart in the fact that he kind of let me go. You know, he said, make this class yours. Uh, you know, this is the core content that we want, but other than that, make it yours. So 
one of the things that I would do is I would say, how can we make this place better? It, we have to take more manpower, more money, uh, more units. All of that is off the table. What can we do to make it better for ourselves? So we were focusing more on the internal customer than the external customer. And we had a lot of very creative ideas. There are a lot of people in our service who are very, very creative. And afterwards, because we didn't quite have the platform yet, but after the class would finish, I had multiple people come up to me and say, hey, you know, we, we do a lot for our guys in the way of physical wellness. We have a great physical wellness program. Uh, we have annual doctor visits that we have to go to. Um, the guy who ran our actual uh, physical wellness program is you know, just a leader in this, in this field, but we don't do anything for mental wellness. We don't do anything for guys who might be hurting, you know, inside. And so I started looking at it and luckily I was housed in the same building as, as like I said, my mentor, uh, Joe McLuhan. And we started looking and it was staggering that the, the number of, suicides were outpacing line of duty and that there were really no resources. Everybody had some checks in the box, but if I was struggling aside from some friends, I wouldn't know who to reach out to and I wouldn't know what kind of resources were out there. So it just kind of lit a fire under us to say, if we don't do it, we don't know who will. So let's try. And really it was the, the day before I broke my leg, never thought of it. Afterwards, it became a passion because I realized, even through some personal family struggles uh, that we had gone through, how much this was needed and how much it was still too taboo to talk about. So if nothing else, let's get the stigma off the table, and then maybe things will fall into place. So long story short, that's how I uh, got involved in our mental wellness aspect. Nice. I, I couldn't help but think... And I know this is selfish, but it's my show, so I, I can talk about myself as well. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no rules. Uh, it, it, when I was thinking about when you were telling all that story and how all this came about from an injury, it made me actually think of when I tore my ACL uh, for the third time and I was put on light duty and they just let me go at it with the cancer stuff. And that was my, that was my job assignment for there. And, and basically what I'm doing now evolve from that so it's funny how you know negative things can actually turn out positive things for years later and benefit other people as well um with that being said so you you started you started the orlando uh, peer support team what what year was that when you did all this uh i want to say it was towards the end of 2014 so yeah about five five years ago Five was, and a half years ago. Was this peer support team, um, was it through the union, through the department, through through both of them, or, or how, how was it set up? So we tried to uh, we tried to go through our department. That was initially what had happened. And I feel like a couple things, like I said, there was a sense of urgency in me because I didn't want to be the next, uh, you know, stat as far as suicide goes and and, you know, even though it was very underreported, I knew that these things were happening. And so we initially tried really hard to go through the department and we met some roadblocks. Uh, there were there were people in uh, HR 
and in our city legal who had issues with it and we just kept meeting roadblocks but before we knew those roadblocks were in place we did something that i i feel really really went a long way is we just started on our own time started driving from station to station and letting guys know that this was coming so we hit every station on every shift uh me and there was probably only four of us at the time and uh and you know we have we have 17 stations so we hit every station on every shift just on our own time and i think that went a long way to the guys because they were able to ask questions it wasn't a directive that came out from the fire chief it wasn't uh somebody looking to get promoted it was a bunch of guys who just were taking their own time and really trying to make some kind of change in our in our service and so we met some resistance after that. At first, I said, you know, this, this program is coming, and this is what it's going to be, and this is why it's going to be. And it was amazing because people just started opening up at the firehouse table right there. The first conversations that we ever had about this, people would share their experiences. People would share their stories. And what that started doing was letting everybody else know that they're not on an island, that oh my gosh, I can't believe this guy is going through what seems so similar to what I'm going through. And it happened almost immediately. People were just starving for something like this. And to hear that they're not alone, I think that was the common theme. I want to know that I'm not alone. And so we met some resistance, for, like I said, from the city. And so we had to, I, we had already promised our members that this was coming. So we had to find another way. And we're very fortunate that we have a, we have a bunch of guys who started something called the Benevolent Association. And this it's a it's a nonprofit organization that was started by our firemen with the sole purpose of helping firemen through tragedies, through family loss, through through personal loss. And so, you know, any any funeral in the in the region, you would see these guys there and they would cut the family a check and they would raise money to provide uh, assistance in times of need it was a no-brainer for us you know this this aligned with what our mission was right from the start and so they took us under their wing and that's how we're run now we're run through our benevolent association we get all of our funding through them um, we're still not recognized by our city uh, but I'm hoping we you know we we have some changes that have happened and it's really really out out there so you know we're that's, we're hoping to make some strides in that area that's kind of surprising to me that that last statement you made there that the city is still not on board with this after everything you guys have been through in the last few years i mean you think it'd be a, a no-brainer that they would they would uh be on board and be supportive in any way they could be so that that's it's actually kind of depressing yeah, you know, it's, I guess it's perspective. Um, don't get me wrong. There were times that, that the frustration was very overwhelming. Uh, there's things that they don't quite understand. They have issues with, with liability and, and, you know, uh, things that to me are, are non-issues. There, it, it is not a, it is not an issue at all. And especially it shouldn't be the stopping point. For us moving forward with this but i will say that you know we have provided assistance to it, it hasn't stopped us from providing assistance to our members uh we just had to find 
different ways around it. Uh, our administration has sent us, you know, even uh, um, to neighboring departments when the need has arrived or to departments out like in El Paso or Las Vegas or Parkland. So we've been able to do a lot of things. And, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is that I still have uh, such a solid group of people motivating me and pushing me forward to say, well, we can stop because they told us no, or we can find ways around it to still provide what we know is absolutely needed. And to me, glass half full, probably to a fault, <laughs> you know, I'm an optimist to a fault, but to me, that is the most empowering thing about this fire service is that we drive the change. We dictate the change. We are standing on the shoulder of many giants who refuse to say no. And we can either say no and, and we can either accept no and say it's good enough, or we can say, no, I want to make those giants that we're standing on the shoulders of proud. And that is what these guys who are around me are doing every single day. I hope. I hope. Yeah, from what I'm getting from you, and, and I want you to just kind of make sure I'm on the right page. Management, all in all, is good with this. They support peer support. It's then the city, the uh, the bean counters, the, the officials that are hesitant where the red tape is. Is that is that accurate? Um, I think that when when management has the ability to be armed with knowledge, just like anybody. If you have the ability to be armed with knowledge, you realize that this scary monster that you're afraid of, such as your support, isn't quite as scary. So when we do have the opportunity to speak to and, and find our, our ways around management, like now what we've done is uh, we've had to uh, – we've had to create through our union, we've created an alternative sick leave bank. So now we don't have to go to management and make, put them in the position of deciding whether we can deploy to a, a department who needs it or not. We've created a sick leave bank where our members can donate five hours a year. Every member can donate five hours of sick leave a year. And then that way, if there is God forbid, another tragedy, we can use that. So we really tried to take it out of their lap to say, you know, this is what this is what needs to be done, and these are the ways that we can do it. That, you know, I'm not putting you in a precarious position of having to either go against your boss or go against us. So, I would love to say that everybody holds hands all the time, but sometimes if there's a misunderstanding, it might not always be that way. Does that answer the question? <laughs> no, no, it does. It does. <laughs> Um, I was just trying to get a, a, a better understanding of everything and how it, how it works down there. Yeah, we just had to find creative ways to to provide help whenever we can, whenever we're able to. We've had to find those creative ways to be able to provide that. And that's and that's good for you guys. I mean, to t to take it upon yourself to actually um, make the effort and and be there just in case, and because you know. You know it's the right thing to do, plain and simple. I mean, if you can help our own, we should do that. So Absolutely. whatever way possible, and I'm glad you guys kind of realize that and are, are doing that. Um, 
Now I kind of wanted to segue into, and I know you've you've had to talk about this this time, probably hundreds of times, I imagine. Let's talk about June twelfth, two thousand sixteen, Pulse nightclub. Um, cor- correct me if I'm wrong. You were you were not on duty. Correct, correct. Uh-huh. I was in training at the time. I was a I was one of our training lieutenants, and uh, so. I was I was actually downtown. I I'd taken my kid to see a concert. Um, a it's funny we went to the same venue that I had seen my first concert in. It was uh, this kind of punk rock singer, and that was so. It was a meaningful night to me because it was the first time that that you know my kid had ever really seen a show like that and all that. So had a great night, and I was nowhere near the Pulse nightclub. Um, when the actual shooting happened. I was probably two miles from it when me and my kid were out there, but I woke up the next morning to um, just a plethora of text messages and voicemails. And um, one of the guys on our team had spoken to uh, one of our firefighters, and this sounds like seven degrees to Kevin Bacon, but her, her husband was a SWAT team member, and she called my... Uh, my friend who's on the peer support team and told him, Hey, this horrendous shooting just happened. So he called me and we started realizing what the scope of it was. I think at first they said there were seven dead. And we know that that was a gross understatement because it turned out to be 49. And uh, so I hopped in the car and I drove down, I called our health and safety chief and said, Hey, what do we need to do to line something up? Um, So, my perspective was not of a responder. My perspective was of a peer supporter. Um, I spoke with our, with our health and safety chief, and it was 8 o'clock in the morning. Now, luckily, we had already made some contact. We, were, uh, we had been working pretty steadily with University of Central Florida. They have a top-notch behavioral health center. Um, worked a lot with, with veterans and then transitioned over to the firefighters. So I called them up. They showed up at our station one right away uh, and realized that it probably was not the best time to do what we were planning to do. We wanted to get a gauge on it, but these guys were exhausted. None of them had, had slept since, since the shooting happened, and they were up hours. So everybody just went home. Um, after everybody went home uh, to be with their family, to hug their family, I think that the worst thing we could have done was forced everybody to stay. Uh, they were tired. They were fatigued. They just wanted to go hug their family. And the trauma of what had happened was still, it was still so numb. They were still so numb. So it wouldn't have been effective us talking to those guys that morning anyways. So I went to station five, which was the, the, uh, the station directly across the street from the Pulse nightclub, and I was shocked at at the aftermath. I didn't see the triage area because they set up the triage area across the street from Station Five, and I didn't see any of that. But I saw the aftermath of Station Five, and I was shocked. It's funny. It reminded me of uh, remember that movie uh, Indiana Jones? I think it was Raiders of the Lost Ark, the very first one. He's, he's, he has to step on these stones so that arrows don't get shot at him. 
sure. and, or that game that you play when you can't you can't step on certain things or else it's lava, you know, when you're a kid. That's what it reminded me of because I had to watch my stuff step so much because there was that amount of blood everywhere. And I could only imagine what these guys had seen. This is just the next morning. Those guys had to actually deal with the people who were bleeding. So, you know, we knew that it was going to be an overwhelming feat. We had so many people on our department respond to it, and we didn't know a roadmap. We didn't know we had we had a rough idea, but we didn't have a an exact roadmap of what to do for these guys. So, we were fortunate enough. Our our local president, uh, Ron Glass, called me and he said, "Hey, uh, the IFF said they're willing to send guys down and help out." I think this is the first time that they had ever sent somebody after a tragedy like this. Uh, Jim, I'm not a, I'm not a smart guy at all. Uh, but in this case, I knew that the answer had to be yes. So I said, yes, please. We'll take all the help we can get. There was no pride involved. It was a matter of what do we need to do to take care of our guys? I was fortunate enough that we had members from FDNY and Boston and Indianapolis come out and just give us suggestions and help help us create a plan. They didn't they didn't come in and create the plan for us. They helped us create the plan. It was very empowering and a, a very good confidence booster because we developed something that that we hoped would be able to serve our guys uh, for the long haul. Well, and you realize too, it didn't just serve your guys. I mean, them coming in is fast forward five years later or three years later, and you know they're doing the same thing in my city. So, yeah. you know, and yeah. and that's and I wanted to touch on that too because I mean the reason I met you, the reason I talked to you is because of the incident in our city. And I sat back and, and this is all new to us. It's obviously new to you, but I kind of was put in the position where find out more about this. What do we need to do? So I sat down and I looked at other mass shootings and, um, I ended up calling different locals trying to just, you know, that, and I wanted to do this where it was a couple years removed. So they had, you know, I was just looking for advice. Tell me what you did right away, what you did later on, what worked, what didn't work. I, I, I wanted to just, I was just in a information gathering mode to where, I need to get information and I need to put together a plan, short-term, long-term, medium-term, all that kind of stuff. So one of the, the guys that I talked to was uh, your union president, Ron Glass. And uh, he, he was absolutely great help. And he, he actually, you know, said, Hey, if you need guys, I'll send, I'll send our guys up there. Um, we, we didn't end up doing that, but again, uh, just the willingness and, he gave me some great advice, but probably the best thing he did is he put me in touch with you. Um, and you were really able to, out of everybody I talked to, kind of break things down and simplify it to, to where I was at and where I needed to go. Um, and I know, and people can look back in the archive, not look, but listen back in the archives. I, I kind of went over some of the stuff in our Steve Kahn episode. Um, but, uh, you talked about uh, you, your incident was very similar to ours. And I think I've talked to you about this before, obviously, um, to where you have the shooting, 
you have, I mean, you have a station right across the street. Um, you have a huge response there, but they're not able to get in there right away. And, you know, because of that, they kind of just felt helpless. They're, they're, they know they could do things that could help, but the scene wasn't necessarily safe. And so there was that their pause. And, and because of that, it kind of screwed it up. And that kind of, it's the same thing that happened with my guys and gals. Um, we thought there was a second shooter. So there was a delay and we didn't get inside that scene until much later on. Um, and it was a different, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a, a, a building. It was, it was outside with exits. And I mean, there's all sorts of different things to that. That's not necessarily a norm. Um, but you talked about something that, cause I've heard all about this, uh, um, Oh, what is it? Survivor's guilt. And it's, it, it was, I kind of saw that, but I didn't really feel like it fit the definition. And then you, you busted out the moral injury. And I wanted, I wondered if you can kind of explain that as well. Like, like you did to me, you know, several months ago. Yeah. 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 And, and to your credit, when I talked to you, I really didn't have much in the way of advice for where you should go because you're, you had things mapped out. I was, I was very, uh, um, I was very encouraged by the way you had things laid out for your guys. So a credit to you because whoever you talked to and however you developed your plan, you did a phenomenal job before we ever even got on the phone with each other. Um, I was like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you got it right. You've got a follow-up plan, which is huge. You have to follow up. I call it the overhaul plan. You know, if you if you go to a fire and there's uh, extension into the cabinets above the stove and you don't overhaul, you're going to be coming back to a bigger fire. So you had a follow-up plan. You had all of the things that we had kind of learned from all of these uh, outreaches that we had done already in place. So a huge credit to you for, for being such a forward thinker because it's, it's, it can be very overwhelming when this happens to your community. So, uh, you know, much credit to you, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a girl from Miami, Miami Dade, and I heard her speak and it clicked where I, I consider her a, a good friend now. Uh, her name is Michelle Fayette. If you're ever looking for somebody to come on your show, she's very good. But, uh, I heard her speak at a conference once and she talked about something called moral injury. And I had heard of moral injury in the context of military. So I have a friend of mine who is a military counselor, and he's really delving into the moral injury aspect of being asked to do something that, you, that is against your code. But I didn't know how it would relate to us. How does moral injury relate to us? Well, we are, we're a group of people who are called to fix whatever problem it is. And the injury can occur when we are not able to fix the problem that occurs. So you have guys who are who respond to to these mass tragedy incidents, and or it does it doesn't matter if it's a mass tragedy in, incident or not. It could be a, a pediatric drowning, and all of the training and all the skills and all of the knowledge that they have acquired over the years still is not enough to fix whatever the problem is 
that that happens and that creates something that that is now being looked at called moral injury and it's not ptsd per se um it it's it's different than that and it's not a diagnosable thing so it doesn't fall into the diagnostic manual or anything like that but it is real and I, I, I was struck by this because after Michelle talked about it, we had a, a lieutenant who was on duty the night of Pulse, and he walked up to me. And he said, she described me like that is me. I'm dealing with what she just talked about. And it was striking to me because it had never really been put in that context. You know, we were called to save a life. And when we can't save a life, what happens to us? It might not be PTSD. But that injury might occur, and that's where the moral injury kind of falls in. Um, I don't know if I did a good enough job explaining it, but but it, it no. made a lot of sense to me. And like I said, when when this lieutenant came up to me, I was like, oh, we got to delve into this more. And she's done a phenomenal job um, helping teach about this throughout the state, uh, you know, really bringing this into light. No, that, and that's been great. And and you've had, again, you know, my whole goal was to follow up and see where you've been and what you've done. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, this this is not a long-term uh, issue, or it's not, excuse me, not a short-term issue necessarily. I mean, this is, correct me if I'm wrong, you started seeing and noticing things a year down the line, two years down the line, people started having issues from from this incident. Is that is that accurate? It's absolutely accurate. And uh, we were, again, we were fortunate that we had people who had been through something similar to this and were able to warn us of that. Uh, when the two-year mark hit, the floodgates opened. We probably had more people reach out to us after, right leading up to the two-year mark than we had at any other point. It was kind of eye-opening to me because, you know, the, the old models that used to exist and, uh, you know, when we would try to take care of people, a lot of times what would happen is these teams would come in and you would, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, they would come in and, and it was an open, closed case. Like, okay, we're leaving, you know, see you later. And there wasn't a lot of follow-up. But what we learned is that there's no time frame on this. You know, the, it, th these things can sneak up to you. And after Pulse, it was very eye-opening. And, and we were fortunate in the sense that we set up a schedule to follow up with these guys. Some of them were very informal. Some of them were just, we'd stop into the station, we'd check in on them. Hey, how you doing? Uh, we set up, um, you know, we kind of looked at it as we had to gather this information from these guys. And again, we had to overhaul this or else the fire would grow and get bigger. So we set up a two-week mark, a one-month mark, a three-month mark, six-month mark, a one-year mark, a year-and-a-half mark, and a two-year mark. And like I said, none, not all of those things were formal, you know, like, hey, let's follow up. The one-year mark was, and we stayed ahead of the anniversary because it's the community, the way the community has rallied around the victims of the Paul shooting has really been remarkable. But with that comes the vigils. And it comes the the uh, people remembering right there on your on your front apron or in your front lawn or directly across the street because Station Five was was like I said it was directly across the street 
those guys could hear the gunfire and they thought that it was right outside of their station. That's how loud it was. So all of this stuff was going to be right in your face. The, the guys who responded from our downtown stations, they have a, they have a place in their area that a lot of these vigils are held. So we knew that, okay, let's stay ahead of that one year mark and just let these guys know that they're not forgotten about. Um, these are some things that they might encounter during the one year mark. These are some things that you might take home to your family because sometimes we forget about the ripple effect that happens to the other two thirds of our life. And so we were, we were able to uh, hopefully prepare these guys. Never once did we make anybody talk if they didn't want to talk. Um, this was all we would, we would offer some education and that was it. And then we would open up the floor if they wanted to talk, if they wanted to share their experiences from the past year or the past two years, by all means. But what that did was empower them to do it on their own terms. Nobody was forcing them. And so we, we got even more buy-in by really taking that approach as opposed to tell me what you did and how you feel about it. Tell me what you did and how you feel about it. Um, so again, we set up a schedule for afterwards because we knew that three days after the event, nothing might show up, but sure. six months after the event, a year after the event, you know, how many times do you talk to retirees who say they never had an issue until about three months retire before retirement. And then every intersection they drive by every house that they drive by, they're reminded of 30 years worth of stuff. So yeah, we, we definitely tried to stay vigilant and we still try to, whether it's a, a one unit response or whether it's the Pulse nightclub shooting, we really try to follow up. And even more than that, we empower the crews to follow up with each other. They're the first line of defense. And, and we realize that as well. Perfect. Now, Jeff, let me ask you this. Um, how significant was it to have your peer support team already in place before a major incident like that? we couldn't have done it without it. So there's no way that we could have tackled what we attempted to tackle without having a system already in place. Uh, if you are waiting to start, don't start now before it happens, because God forbid, and I pray that it never happens in your community, but if it does, and that's the time that you start thinking about this, you are way behind the eight ball. Uh, so you know, I, I try to break it down into the fire ground. The fire ground is what I know. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a counselor. Um, I've, I've really tried to learn about this because it's fascinating, but the fire ground is, is what I've known since just out of high school. So I look at it. How do we gather information on the fire ground? Well, you know, we, we basically have three sources of information visual what the fire is telling us what this person is telling us right um that is the the information that these guys are sharing with us if they choose to open up uh then we have reconnaissance so if you're the commander on side alpha how do you know what's going on on side charlie you have people who are putting eyes on the back of the building that you might not be able to get so we have 25 members uh on our peer support team but our department is almost 600 members. So we can't keep eyes on everybody ourselves. We can see side alpha, but we don't know what's happening on side Charlie. So we really rely on the buddy system, the reconnaissance. We empower these guys 
to take care of each other. We know, I know that, that Jim, you are probably more apt to take care of the person sitting next to you than you are of yourself at times. It's just the way that we're wired and we're built. So if we tap into that buddy system that's already in place, you know, the fire service has been doing this for years and years. If we tap into that, then we have that reconnaissance aspect taken care of. We'll have people who are able to reach out and tell us this is what's going on. And then we'll be able to get that person the help that they need. But probably the most important aspect of gathering information on a fire ground is pre-planning. And if you wait to pre-plan your target hazards, your, your heavy hazmat scenes, if you wait to pre-plan that until the fire actually happens, you are sending your, your guys into a very dangerous situation. And I don't want to sound melodramatic. I never want to sound melodramatic with this, but I can't stress this enough. Find out what resources are out there. If you just take that step, find out how your EAP system works, right? So what, how many visits do you get in your EAP system? Who, what counselors are you actually sending your people to? And are they equipped to handle what we're bringing to the table? Again, without sounding melodramatic, I've heard plenty of stories of, people going to a counselor in their EAP system and the counselor crying before their session is done. You've just lost that person. He's probably not going to go back and see another counselor because everything that he knows about counseling has just been solidified right there in that visit. Uh, and then do you have any say in what your EAP is? Find the members of your department who are naturally gifted when it comes to this. We have members that are already doing this in a very uh, unofficial role. A guy from uh, Fort Lauderdale Fire Department, a guy named Ryan Zahner, he gave me an idea, and um, our team had already been formed. But the way that he formed his team was he sent out a survey. And I think this is starting to become the standard throughout because I just talked to a couple guys from Greensboro, uh, North Carolina, who had done the same thing sent out a survey and basically the survey said, please give us the names of three people who you would feel comfortable going to in a situation like this. If you're having a family issue, if you're dealing with depression, anxiety, any of these things that we might encounter as human beings, who do you feel comfortable talking to it about, talking to about it? And that's how they built their whole team. And so the members of their department built their team. It wasn't who does Jeff Orange feel comfortable reaching out to? It was who do you guys feel comfortable? But if you're not doing this pre-planning beforehand, you are going to be so far behind the curve when this thing actually happens. It's just going to be a game of catch-up. And you don't need to play that game of catch-up if you start now. That's perfect. Well, hey, I, I want to thank you for coming on here and, and just sharing all this stuff. Thank you for everything you're, you're doing for me and my department as well. Usually, I go about and I ask you, I got the 25 random question list. I'm not going to do that because this is our Christmas Eve episode. So I'm going to ask you just questions related to Christmas time. So awesome. you up for that? All right. So yeah. number one, I mean, this is a hard one. It could be a hard one. Maybe it's not that hard. <laughs> is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Oh, Die Hard is an everything movie. <laughs> there is, there is uh, nothing that Die Hard doesn't fit in the genre of. So, absolutely. All right, all right. What about your favorite Christmas song? Oh, man. 
<laughs> so, uh, to be honest, the first thing that popped into my head is uh, a friend of mine had a band in high school and they did a cover song from a punk rock group, but they changed all the words to Christmas words. And you'll never hear this song ever because it was never recorded, but that was probably my favorite rendition of any Christmas song. So that's very obscure. I know it doesn't, doesn't do a good job of answering it, but yeah. That, Fair enough. That, <laughs> the, you know what I've been, I I played I played this song for my kids the other night and and they loved it and it was um and you should look this up uh, Blue Christmas I'm not talking about the Elvis rendition okay All check right. out check out the Porky Pig okay <laughs> it's it's hilarious it's great it's good stuff All right good. now now um if anybody want to get a hold of you. If they had questions for you, I, I know you've been obviously a resource for me. You, you, you've been a resource for other people. And, and you even told me before, like, hey, at some point, people are going to call you and ask for information. So if, if somebody wanted to contact you, if they had questions, if they wanted to follow up about how, you know, you, you put your team together there in Orlando, where would they contact you? At? Yeah, and don't say don't, the- don't say MySpace. <laughs> That's not a thing anymore? <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. Probably the best way to get a hold of me would be through email. Um, it, it would, the, and the best email address for me would be J Orange, O R R A N G E, at Florida Firefighter Safety dot org. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Really, I mean, thank you for everything. Um, it's it's kind of been uh, just great all all in all to, to and i know the situation sucks and how we got together that's not ideal but at the same time i'm appreciative of, towards it I, I consider you a friend and uh you've been helpful to me because and this is another point peer supporters need peer support sometimes so absolutely you know we can't forget that as well but uh with that again i thank you and i'm sure i'll bug you here soon enough well, I can't, I can't thank you enough for giving people a platform to tell their stories. Uh, sometimes just being present for somebody, not knowing what to say is fine. It's totally fine if you don't know what to say. You, we encounter, as, as peer support, as human beings, we encounter people who are going through situations that can't be fixed with words. So being there for somebody just being present for somebody is bigger than you will ever know. So if you encounter, this is for all the listeners out there. If you encounter somebody who has changed, their mood has changed, uh, their personality has shifted and you can see it on their face that they're struggling, open the door for them. You're not going to know what words to say. Uh, you're, you might not know even where to send that person at the time, but if you open the door and you are present for that person, you might save a life. It is, it, it is a very powerful thing just to be present for somebody. So please don't shy away from it because you're scared of, of those conversations. Be there. We're a very brave bunch. So be brave for somebody who might need it as well. I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. And, you know, my, just having my door opened to uh, some of these opportunities has, has led me to meet people like you. So 
I'm grateful for that. I am too. All right. Well, thanks again for your time. Uh, everybody have a uh, Merry Christmas. Hope you had a happy Festivus, whatever you celebrate. It's all good. And uh, I'll see you guys next Tuesday. Take care.